Welcome to Sheer Clarity, the show that will teach you about leadership by attraction, building self-awareness, and how to develop exceptional self-management abilities that will help you become more reflective, more open, more trusting, and more engaging with the people who matter to you most. In other words, make you a better leader. Head on over to SheerClarity.com where you can learn more, subscribe to the show for free, and connect on social media. And now, here's your host, Jay Kevin McHugh. Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Sheer Clarity. I am your host, Jay Kevin McHugh. Sheer Clarity is a podcast for leaders. It's focused on what I like to call leadership by attraction. And uh, what is that, you ask? Well, anybody who's got this quality of being a leader by attraction, there's something about them. As soon as people encounter you, they actually feel a sense of calm and they are invited in and they feel comfortable. They get a sense from just the energy that you have, that you are a server, that you are a person who's there to care about them. You want to hear or they want to hear your story. They want to know how they can help you, how they can make you better. And I've come to the conclusion after 30 years that the single most important element that any leader can work on is self-understanding. The term in uh, the emotional intelligence world is called self-awareness, but I discovered over the years now that even when someone says they're self-aware, I kind of remind them, yeah, you're self-aware of the things you're aware of, but actually most of the information you need is probably information you're not yet aware of. That is the, the deeper orientation to your psyche, how you're wired, and that comes from how you grew up, the influences of your childhood. And there's also life and things happen in life. And the way your life was formatted will start to create an entire map of predispositions and emotional responses. And uh, if you're not in touch with those, those will actually show up as part of your life and your decision making and the way you interact with people. And if you get triggered, that behavior sometimes is not so attractive. And before you know it, people are feeling a sense of being pushed away or they can't get close to you or they can't make a connection with you. And uh, that actually slows things down because the truth is when you have this quality, this sheer clarity about yourself, uh, you have a kind of inner peace and, and this is, becomes attractive. And the, the real benefit is, is that people love you and they follow you anywhere. They will be honest with you. They will tell the truth. They will cover whatever's going on in the business or whatever problem they're solving. They're not fearful of telling you things. They're not afraid to you know, disagree with you. And these are all important qualities to have as a great leader. So that's what Sheer Clarity is. Uh, you can visit the website. It's sheerclarity.com. Those are the words sheer and clarity as one word. You can find all of our interviews out there. The first 35 episodes or so is when we started the show. I downloaded a lot of the concepts and the principles of sheer clarity. And then we migrated to interviewing guys like this guy I have here today. And what we're learning from them is what their travel journey was and how they became the leaders they are today. And I uh, think these interviews give you another insight to how people themselves have been working on their leadership style and their approach. So with all that said, I want to welcome to the show a good friend of mine. I've known him for a number of years. And this, uh, ladies and gentlemen, is Rob Follows. Rob, good morning, sir. How are you doing? Good morning to you. 
Fantastic. Thank you. Yeah, it's great to have you on the show. It's my policy to sort of let the uh, the guest explain a little bit about what they do. So my only intro, I would say, is that Rob is the chairman and CEO of STS Capital Partners, the phrase, a sell-side strategic sell-side consultant is the terminology I understand from him. Essentially, people who are ready to transition, sell their businesses, they have options out there about how to do it. And Rob will be an incredible guide along that journey of selling a business. He's also an entrepreneur himself because of the business he's in. He's a deal guy. He's a deal maker. He's also an extreme adventurer. I don't know if we'll cover any of that, but if we get to it, uh, he has a pretty interesting story about conquering the seven summits. And the last thing I'd say is a very generous guy, and he has a very interesting approach to philanthropy. Obviously, in the world that he operates in, he comes across a lot of people who are in touch with a lot of wealth, and uh, he has some great philosophies about helping people and guiding them through that. So, Rob, with that said, maybe I'll just turn it over to you, and maybe you can give us an overview of STS Capital, and then I'll start some questions about your journey. Well, thank you. It's an honor to be here with you, Kevin, and I really appreciate very much the opportunity to share whatever might be meaningful to your listeners. So thank you. STS Capital is a firm that is very different in this market. STS stands for success to significance through selling to strategics. And they're the two STSs. The success to significance suggests that all of us have the opportunity to contribute time, treasure, and talent to help make the world a better place. And most of us are humbled by others, but we need to, I think, recognize that all of us can contribute. And I think some of the biggest potential contributors, Kevin, are people that own businesses, as I did when I was younger, having started a business early in life. And through when the time is right, selling those businesses to strategic investors that will pay more and potentially give the freedom to the seller to do what they'd like after the sale, as opposed to drawing them back into the business, can contribute the opportunity for people to free up their time, treasure, and talent, which can, I know, with people's heart in the right place, make the world a much better place. Boy, that's amazing. That's amazing. So how did you get here? How did you come to do this? Just give us a little sort of snapshot of the journey that brought you to this place. As a summary, I'll suggest that when I was young, I think adversity builds strength in people. So I'll say I was fortunate in my life to have a lot of adversity when I was young and I made some decisions, therefore was pushed to make decisions on, you know, how I would perceive life. And I, I decided very early at 16 to define my own definition of happiness, Kevin, and success and decided that I would just start over again and just choose to be a happy no matter what the outside circumstances were around me. And that led to being very optimistic and very positive about starting businesses. So I became an entrepreneur very early on. When I was 18, I started a business or started in a business that was in the marketing services area. I was in Banff, Alberta, Canada, making enough money to pay for my university to go back to school as I had a bit of a falling out with my dad who'd said, if you don't come into the family business, it was his business he'd started, then you're cut off, Rob. You have nothing and you owe me $20,000. And that was a favor my dad did me because I took the uh, I'm out and I owe you $20,000 option instead of working for him. But it was hard going. I mean, in doing so, worked very, very hard to build up a marketing services business starting off in Canada that then uh, grew internationally. 
I was also fortunate to be in a, well, to be open and, and vulnerable in a, in a marriage that wasn't so positive. My wife, while I was in law school, I had the opportunity to go to law school and didn't want to give that up. It was really hard at that point in time for a white male to get into law school because they were working very hard to change the dynamics of the legal profession. So I was lucky enough to get in and didn't want to and worked very hard to do that. So didn't want to give that up. So I went to law school and ran the business at the same time, which is very healthy for the business because it became independent of me. But when I got out of that experience, after three years of working full-time and going to law school full-time, let's just say my old high school friend, my wife at the time, had had some extracurricular activities, which led us to go down the road because integrity is really important to me of getting divorced. And in doing that, I realized that I met someone who said, you know, this is an exercise you need to follow, Rob. Project yourself to your deathbed. You don't need to go back into your office, do you? I mean, they're used to not having you there. Why don't you spend some time on really getting a life compass in place? And to the extent that you want to pray and meditate, that would be a fantastic focus. But also project yourself to your deathbed Really get yourself there emotionally and start looking back at your life and say, when I get to my deathbed, what do I want to see? And so I had made you know, quite a bit of money. I was financially independent uh, by then. The business was very successful. So I had an indoor pool that I did not swim in for years because I was working so hard at law school and keeping the business going. And so I started swimming because I used to be a swimmer in high school two hours a day and projecting myself to my deathbed. And really connecting emotionally with that of, you know, you're passing on what really matters to you. And I was 27 years old, 28 years old at the time and around 27 years old. It was a very humbling experience and it is a humbling experience. I recommend it to everyone to try. Um, you need to, I found you need to do something with your body so your mind can really focus like walking. Maybe in my case, it was swimming or canoeing or something like that. And when I came out of that, Kevin, I had a list of, and I still have a list, it's very humbling, as I say, of an eight and a half by 11 piece of paper with six or seven objectives that I wanted to, when I was passing on, obtained in my life. And uh, one of them was to create an organization that would live well beyond me, breaking the cycles of poverty for many generations to come. And that would be a charitable foundation that I would create. And I realized as I came out of that planning process and tried to link it back to the planning I was doing, which were five-year plans, that I was working and I didn't need to be working because I had enough money, thankfully. I was very thankful for that. And so I did, I took a very brave step of aligning my life with my end-of-life objectives I'd set out. And I decided I would sell everything that I owned, that I would sell all the properties I had, I would sell the business eventually. And in doing that, it really became something that really freed me up. And I learned a lot through that process. I sold the business for what became 27 times EBITDA, which was a huge number at the time, but later realized that company would have paid 100 times EBITDA for my business. And I made a commitment, which is one of the pillars of STS, to teach people what the real value of their business is to the buyer so they can have the most time, treasure, and talent to contribute back to the world. And I also ended up with a fantastic mentor, Bill Meritz, who spent 90% of his time, unbeknownst to his team, on philanthropy and on charity, and 10% of his time on the work, and was, the, was Fortune 50, like he was the 50th wealthiest guy in the United States at the time. 
and he taught me to really balance working flat out, but also taking the time to spend with loved ones, but also to spend on philanthropy and on helping make the world a better place. So that's some of the foundations that led to later in life when I was offered a PhD at Oxford at 40 to actually focus that because my foundation that I started was called UltraVest. And at Oxford, in studying that, STS Capital was born in the context of a PhD on corporate philanthropy at the business school at Oxford. So I am amazed by one thing that you said earlier on that I wanted to just, I don't know, I just want to talk about it for a minute. I know I have a number of young younger people listening, and by younger, I mean anywhere from 25 to 35. And as I heard you describe it, there you were at a fairly young age, and I don't recall what when it was in your 20s or 18 or 20, yeah. and you actually had the wherewithal to say, I'm going to do a, a mental exercise, emotional exercise. I'm going to project myself into my deathbed, and from that, get a sense of what I should be doing today to lead me to that spot. Do you think that was unusual for a person at that age to actually have that kind of thinking? Like, where do you, I don't know that when I was 27, I I was thinking that philosophically or existentially, like, but you know, when I do the show, I'm listening a lot for what I call moments of sheer clarity so that it, towards the end, we sort of summarize some of the pearls that the guests are dropping along the way. And this idea of projecting yourself into your deathbed is already one of the early ones as a legitimate exercise to get people to think about their lives holistically. So the question I have is, how did you even come to understand that was a thing to do? Like, where did you... Actually, it was two things that led to that. One, being really listening to my management team who said when I came back from law school and I'd been just tips of the waves with the business and, you know, focused externally bringing, bringing business in for the marketing services company, which was called AIM, which stood for Active Impressions and Marketing. And the message from my team was, don't come in here and mess up the balance. We don't need you in the office, Rob. And I, that was a real emancipation. I thought, wow, you know, I, I don't need to go to the office, even though I own the business. And even though, you know, I, I didn't have huge experience to fall back on being in my mid 20s. And the second thing was to look at the divorce that I went through as being another emancipation to be freed, to not go back into the same patterns, but to actually think objectively about and learn about. So I was journaling every day and taking a lot of time to meditate on and learn to work to quiet my mind so that I could be become a better person. I was very committed to becoming a better person. And with those two backdrops, I was open to looking for a coach, someone that could be a mentor. And through searching for that, I found somebody that was doing a lot of coaching for CEOs that was back then a tech, the executive committee, it was called. Oh, sure. Group. And that person referred me to someone who he said to me, Rob, you may not feel this way, but going through divorce, your oars are up out of the water. 
And I said, but what's wrong with that? Maybe that's a positive thing. And he said, but nobody thinks that's positive. I said, but maybe it is (laughs) time for reflection. And he said, well, I think there's somebody you need to speak to. And he referred me to somebody in Seattle who was with something back then called the Pacific Institute. And we had a very profound conversation about until you do this deathbed exercise, I'm not about to provide you with any coaching or support. And that's how that happens. Wow. But I took it. I'll say one thing. I take things very, I take things on full on when I do them. It's just in my personality. I didn't try that for an hour. I did it. For I hear that. I hear that. Well, I, I love this because this is something that I'm hoping the listeners are going to grab onto. And I'm also weaving in this other element and, you know, I've just started the interview process. And as you know, and I'll remind the listeners, Rob is a very, very dedicated and active member of the Young Presidents Organization. I think at the end of the day, most of my life has been in YPO myself. I was a YPOer back in my early 30s and late 30s. And I became connected with YPO because I started this business of my own. I was 35 when uh, it was pretty clear I couldn't work for others. And without capital to buy a real company, I began this consulting and I just fell into becoming a facilitator for the forum groups. And for the listeners who don't know what what YPO stands for is Young Presidents Organization, and it's a global organization. It's got close to 30,000 members now, and it's for people who become leaders and CEOs and presidents at a very, very young age, and they just combine their forces to be a mutual support system, and now it's evolved into this super global organization. So what I ended up discovering early on was that this process of thinking through things is essential. And all these forum groups are designed to help people do that. So I've got you talking about this encounter early on with a mentor. And so I want to make a footnote to the, the listeners. Mentoring is a part of your career. And if you don't have one, you should be looking for one. And whether it's somebody who's a paid mentor slash coach, or if you're still younger and you can't afford that, you should be looking around in the organization. And I hope you'll find somebody within the organization who is takes you under their wing and wants to feed you and hold you and, and challenge you. So now I'm coming back to this idea that Rob mentioned earlier is that adversity is also critical. So he got to this exercise about the deathbed and projecting your life. And so that's a great thing for people to do. But I'm connecting it with several things that he said earlier. And he said, adversity builds strength. And Rob, you've mentioned two things that stood out to me, a fallout with your dad early and he had a plan for you and what he wanted you to do and live that life, which in his mind was the best thing for you. And, you know, I want anybody who's out there struggling with parents uh, and relationships, they're all coming from their own lives. And if you want to ever get curious, go talk to your parents about how they grew up and ask them about their relationships with their fathers and their mothers. Because trust me, 
every parent is coming to the party with a little baby going, I know a list of things I'm never, ever going to allow to happen or ever going to do with my kid. And then they have a list of things that they're going to make sure they do. And you know what? By the time the kid's 30, the kid's making the choice whether or not they actually agree with what their parents thought was for their best interest. So we're all kind of like locked into that. But this adversity piece becomes very powerful. And he's talked about running into his dad challenge, then had a divorce challenge. And can you talk about how that opened you to this idea? Because apparently something clicked for you that I had to be my own person. I had to make my own way. And you decided to make your own definition of happiness and success. And that came out of adversity. And I was wondering if you can look at the rest of your life and share any other moments of adversity that may have been teachers for you. Because I really want people to become acquainted with this idea that life delivers some pain We tend to want to put it away or tuck it away or we don't want to deal with it. We want to get back to happy. And I just think there's so much to learn by living in the pain and discovering the pain and admitting the pain and and then ultimately being unfearful about telling the story of the pain. A lot of people have it locked up and that's what creates these challenges they have because they're not in touch with it and they don't want to admit it. And so maybe you could comment a little bit about that because sure. this is good stuff sure. for the listener. Well, two things come to mind as you ask that question. The first is when I, I guess the headline for me would be, the learning would be that we all have choices to make and our subconscious is driving us in the direction of what knows to protect us, but we can all step outside of that. Um, outside of our paradigm of, you know, of what we know about ourselves and, and try something new and different just by being visionary is what I would call it. And so the first thing that came to mind for me is when I was 16 years old, I was doing my best to cope with a stepmother who was an alcoholic, was frankly abusive physically and, and emotionally because she was distraught. She'd been through her own issues and she kept bringing them up, you know, she was beaten in a convent, et cetera, et cetera, which is quite ironic. <laughs> Her name was Louise. And Louise created a very, 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 very dark environment because that was what was her reality. And she was my father's common law wife at the time. And part of her penance was to look after my brother and I. <laughs> so you can, you can imagine the response to that wasn't very positive. And so from when I was very young, my mother died when I was two, which created a lot of adversity as well. But I had two Christmases uh, when I was young, I've, I've gotten in touch with when I was one year old and two year old, two years old, which led me to believe that Christmas should be a wonderful, positive time and full of love and light. That Christmas when I was 16 was so dark and it was, it was a cold year. I could not stay in the negative energy anymore. Just otherwise I'd have to compromise my own values. I felt like, and this was when I was 16, I just didn't want to give up on the idea of it being Christmas being wonderful. So I stepped outside onto a a patio that we had in the house we were living in and closed the door behind me because it was around 20 below zero uh, at the time and Celsius. And I started looking up, I sat on the picnic table there and looked up at the moon. It was a full moon. I'll never forget this. I looked up the moon. I thought, This moon will be shining on lots of people that are having a wonderful Christmas, not a horrific Christmas. And it will be 
what I'm going to live. And, and I'm going to make that decision regardless of where I am now in this horrific set of circumstances with a terrorizing stepmother. I'm, and that I'm, you know, my father said I needed to stay with till we were 18. And I was trying out of the commitment to the relationship my dad to, to live up to that. And I was really in what I would call now deep in a meditation on this, looking at the moon, the cold didn't matter to me, strangely, because it was quite cold. And I heard a click behind me. So I turned around to look and with the ugliest, most strained, most hateful face, Louise locked the door and closed the drapes so that nobody would know that I was outside in the cold. And I thought at that moment, I thought, you know what? I'm not going back in there. I'm never going back in there because it is so, and I'm going to create my own happiness. I'm going to start in the center of my heart, defining what, and I'm going to be happy. I'm just going to choose to be happy and nothing is going to get in unless I let it in. And I'm going to be a joyful, happy person from the center of my heart. And, uh, and that's the way my life's going to be lived, no matter what's happening outside of me. So right. later I was criticized by one of my girlfriends as being somebody that would be happy, even if I was in jail. And she was right. Yeah. I would find a way to be happy. Even if I was in jail, I'd find a, you know, books to write and things to do. So I think that is, you know, was very profound for me. And I think that it taught me that, and my life changed, of course, from then on, I started being, and I, you know, I became much more focused on spirituality then. And that's young, you know, that's at 16. So that is one that comes to mind. Another one I think people might be able to relate to was when I was very close to dying. When you climb, so I've done mountain climbing. Um, I set out the seven summits as an objective when I was, I've retired twice and I'll never retire again because it's just not for me. But one of the times that I wasn't working, I set the goal of climbing the seven. I didn't set the goal, actually. My friend I was with, she set the goal. Uh, Katrina was her name to, you know, climb the seven summits. And I, to be honest, I didn't even know what they were then. But we became one of the first amateur couples to climb the seven summits. And on that journey, climbed Everest twice. The second time we climbed Everest, we summited May 24th, 2006. And the thing about climbing Everest or a big, big objective is on the way down is when people end up hurting themselves because you're deflated. There's no big objective for you to look at, you know, as an objective anymore. Right. That you don't have the same drive. You don't have the same drive. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. It feels like a balloon whose air has been let out of it in terms of an objective. And that's why people get really hurt coming down. Your body responds that way. It's not even just your mind. And so you don't have that stressful, positive, whatever it is, cortisol energy running through your, your body. And you just want to get back to that base camp. And it's a long way to base camp from the summit of Everest. I fell. And when I was falling, you know, you talk about adversity and learning. I mean, I knew that if I fell much further, I was going to die. And I tried to remember all the things you're supposed to remember because you're falling down, you know, the face, the face of the mountain. Right. Right. Um, and you're supposed wow. to take your elbows back and your head back because you're wearing a helmet and your and your knees back so you don't break because if you break something up there, it's uh it's really not a good place to not be. a good idea. <laughs> yeah. And I just realized that was a moment where I, I was committed to living. And I thought the ice screws are around, they're about a foot and a half, two feet long, and they're they're about fifty meters apart. And I knew another ice screw was coming. And I flew past it. There was ropes everywhere that could have strangled me. And I just kept saying, I became very religious very fast in that moment. Yeah. <laughs> and I said, God, God, this is not my time to go. I am, I, I have so much to give. 
I cannot die now and I'm not going to die now. And when that ice crew gave, that ice crew pulled, and I knew I had another 50 meters of falling to go, I was totally determined and focused to not die then and made a commitment again that I would dedicate my life to giving when I, uh, when I survived. And I did survive. That rope didn't snap. It stretched a long, long way because I'm 200 pounds, 220 maybe at that point. And it didn't snap. I didn't thank, die. Yeah, thank God, huh? And so, I, so that's one of the reinforcing moments. You talk about you know adversity and what happens, but that happened very fast. And that was my natural response. And when I make a commitment, I deliver always. It's one of my yeah, values. Yeah, me too. So me too. I've reinforced uh, philanthropy and giving to be the underpinning of everything I do. And so now when we talk about STS, we encourage our clients. We, we try to double or triple the value of businesses as against what private equity will pay. And we encourage our clients to give the upside to charity and the referral fees that we are happy to pay because we only do business through referrals. We hope people will dedicate to their favorite charity. And we're creating, I thought, you know, a billion dollars is a stretch. Our stretch objective now is past a billion. It's to create billion, or as Peter DeMondis would say, our massively transformative purpose, MTP, is to create billions of dollars of new philanthropic capital. And I didn't realize in making that statement that I created or we created in the thinking a new term called philanthropic capital. And it's, it's catching on now where people create capital and dedicate it to uh, philanthropic outcomes. Man, you just said a lot. <laughs> I, you, you, know, you're, you know you're one of those guys, right, who just can tell a story and riff and you've got amazing stories. But I'm, I'm listening at a high rate of speed so I pick out the pearls and the nuggets and there's a million of them. There's one note I made from something earlier you said that I don't want to let it go. You actually just said a sentence, I listened to my management team. And that struck me because there must have been something about you at the time that had them feeling comfortable. There was something about them, they must have had the courage. And I'm just wondering if do you know, when did you become the guy who was leading in a way where people could call you out? You know, I'm trying to get all my clients. I have a number of clients that have been with me for a long, long time. And so I know them all very well. I know the family. I know the family dynamics. I know the dynamics on the executive team. This is true in just about every human. Everybody has some emotional baggage. Everybody has a reason to be defensive. And whenever that defensive energy is present, people will shut down. So how did you get to this place where your people were comfortable enough just to call you out? Like, what would you tell people, leaders, about the value of being honest and being transparent and being authentic and unafraid to hear people give you negative feedback. Because they basically, if I, if I interpret it right, they said, why don't you go away? <laughs> get get out of here. Get out of here. You're, yeah, you know, when you come in here, we, we had flow going. We were getting stuff done. And you show up and you gum up the works. Yeah. And you took it like to heart and did something with it. So how do, yeah. how do people who are listening get in touch with their own defensiveness and... They might have an aspiration to be that kind of leader, but people are still uncomfortable being honest with them. 
What would you tell them to do? Kevin, this comes from a deep interest in improvement and in understanding leadership. And in my 20s, I read many, 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 many books on leadership. And I realized, and I'd love to credit a specific author to, as an author now, I'm kind of embarrassed that I can't credit one specific author. But the idea of, of an organization that you're leading being an upside down organization where you're at the bottom of it as the leader supporting your management team became something that was something I worked very hard to practice early on in, in my early 20s. So I felt that I was supporting my management team as the, as the entrepreneur and my management team was supporting you know, their managers who were then supporting the, the teams that worked for them. And in doing so, I felt you know, an obligation to deliver for my management team, just as I do now, in supporting them. Through the decades, I've become harder and harder on myself in upgrading the quality of my management team, which I think we all have to remember to focus on and hold ourselves accountable to. But with a good management team, a great management team, or even an average management team, it's your obligation as a leader to support the management team. And so if you really do believe that, and do see your organization as an upside down organization chart, then it's natural for you to listen. You can't support somebody unless you listen to what they really need. And if they're telling you that they need you not to be around, then yeah. you shouldn't be around, right? I, I, so I think that's probably the answer, if that makes I sense. I think it made total sense. And I'm wondering, in my own reading, I know this concept you're talking about, and I feel like there may be some... Um, source of this idea from Japan, because I remember reading about Japanese management, and one of the quotes was, if you want the company to go up, you need to look down. And the reference was looking down at the organization beneath you. In other words, exactly what you're saying, flipping the chart. So the messaging here for a leader is, you know, you might be the CEO, and on the org chart, you're at the top, but you at least have to be thinking that this organization rests on top of you. And so look down, look to the people who report to you, and your fundamental question needs to be, what do I need to do to help you? What do I need to do to help you? And in your case, they, they told you point blank, well, here's, here's, a, here's one idea, get out of here. <laughs> Like, yeah, don't bother coming yeah. in exactly. Now yeah. here was the other here was the other tidbit that that you dropped and um, I want listeners to hear this one as well. You uh, used the phrase I had a deep interest in my own improvement. And I'm wondering if you see any connection to this search to get better that goes back to that moment on the patio in the freezing cold where you were standing looking at the moon and going, I've just been shut out of my house and a very, very unhappy woman has locked me out. And I was wondering just to draw a line. Is, are they connected or am I just making that connection? And once you take charge of your life, does it follow that you are going to be a person who's committed and being deeply interested in your own growth and your own improvement? So I think, I'll answer that in a longer way than I think you might have expected me to. I I think yes is the short answer for sure. But as I think about it, it's a great question. What happened was I I then, because I was really interested in being happy and 
I was attracted to planning processes. And there is one that I've shared in, in being a, a speaking resource for YPO and a speech that I've delivered many, many times, over 100 times for YPOers called Everyone Has Their Own Everest. What is yours? Life planning is on life planning, seven types of life planning, which relate to the seven summits. And philanthropy is my, is my summit. And in that speech, I talk about life planning. And one of the biggest questions that led to this exploration for me started very early in my life. It was if you had all the time and money and energy in the world, if there were no limits, what would you want to do with the rest of your life? What would you want to do with the rest of your life? And that evolved quickly. We're human beings, not human doers, um, to two lists. What would you want to be and what would you want to do? So there are two lists, actually. But starting off and in your 20s, you're more about the doing, you know, yeah, <laughs> generally. Yeah, of course, of uh, course. So I made a list. So and then and then here's the exercise. Take that list that's for your whole life, because we can human beings don't see beyond two or three years. If that it's very, very hard for us to do that in our, our nature, human nature, and put a five year date out on that and then start living your life start as a business plan. Five years out, what would four years need to look like so that you had every single thing, your dreams all completed by the end of five years and then four, and then three, and then two, and then one on a critical path basis. And in doing that a couple of times, like by the time you're 10 years out and doing that, you start to realize that going back to that, you know, when I was 16, being happy on the being side becomes really important. And in doing that, you start to explore going deeper inside yourself and starting to explore because you realize the, the world is a mirror of you and your expectations as you get deeper into being thoughtful and take, you know, having balance in your life, taking quiet time in your life to reflect, looking for people that'll help and you learn and looking for different ways that you can learn more about how the world works and who we are and how we work. You know, what is this all about? Which, by the way, my conclusion is we're all here to develop our souls. It's a spiritual journey. As Pascal said, we're spiritual uh, beings having a human experience, not human experience, uh, human beings right. having spiritual experiences. And, and so for me, the idea of setting out planning, uh, five-year planning on making a list of everything you want to do in your whole life, you want to become and you want to do, putting a five-year date on it, doing the classic critical path back to how do you live next week as if your dreams really matter and, those, and the passions you have to become the person you know you can be that's outside of your paradigm, those, those planning processes lead to a real focus on self-understanding, self-improvement, and learning. And so early on in life, you know, the intensity of learning through doing a law degree while I was working turned into learning how to be and hope to become a better person, a better leader, a better partner, having been through divorce, a better... Wow. Yep. You know, father, a better, <laughs> a better yeah, yeah. human being. Outstanding. Well, we're, we're running up to the end of this amazing conversation. Thank you for sharing so much. What I'd like to do to close up the show is I want to walk through what I call moments of sheer clarity that I can sort of summarize that you have been so gracious to share. There's a lot here. It's like taking a drink of water from a fire hose. So Thank you, Rob, for that. So here's a couple of them. And then I'm going to give you my one last question. You know, every 
podcast guest interviewer has a final question, and I love to ask this question. So I'll do that, and then we'll close the show. So a couple of things. Number one, adversity is is your friend in so many different ways. And just want to remind people, this podcast will be out sometime in the next week or two. And we are in the midst of this COVID crisis. And so many people are rallying to this challenge. And uh, there's adversity here that none of us ever could have predicted. And so what do you want to do with this adversity? And it will be a teacher. I also had a great exercise that came from you that I want people to think about, and it requires reflection. The show is always mentioning people do not take enough time to sit quietly and reflect. And we're living in a world now with this darn phone in front of our face that we do not, never disconnect. So you must take your time away from the world. Go for a walk. Rob mentioned just swimming for two hours. You can't listen to your phone and you can't look at email and you can't multitask when you're swimming or walking and you just take it all and walk and ask this question. Project yourself into your deathbed and turn around and ask, what do I want to say about myself? Rob mentioned balance, balance of friends, family, work. It is a crucial for you to listen to your management team. And if you're not the kind of boss who's created a safe environment for people to tell you what they think, you're in trouble. You are not getting the information you need to lead. So make sure you listen. Have a deep interest in your own personal growth, your own improvement, your own development. This would connect. You can see the connection between Rob's exercise of projecting into your your deathbed and wondering, you know, what I look like and what do I want to say about myself. Obviously, it would lead you to want to improve. So that's critical. He mentioned in passing, but I think it's important, find people who can help you grow. Find people who can help you learn and use that opportunity to ask for help. I find that, again, it's part of our ego. We don't want to, uh, asking for help sort of admits we're weak, and there's nothing wrong with that. And then at the last thing that Rob said was, be a planner, make a list, take this big picture, work yourself back, and then grab a five-year increment and look out five years I know I've done my deathbed exercise. I know who I want to be. I'm headed in that trajectory. I'm going to find my own happiness. I'm going to define it for myself. No one will do it for me. And I'll break that down to bite sizes and let that five years, where do I want to be in the next five years, turn out to, and therefore, what do I need to do this week? And that's what I heard from you, my friend. I mean, it is a ton of great stuff. So thank you so much for that. Sometimes I'll have a guest go, when they hear me do the summary, go, I said all that? <laughs> so it was great. They were great gifts. So here's the question that I closed the show with. And uh, it's a great opportunity for you to just have a personal synopsis. What advice from what you know now would you give your 23-year-old self? That's a great question. I would tell my 23-year-old self to chill out, to go deeper, faster on learning, to find a way to spend more time on self-development and learning than on working because there's all the time in the world to make money and provide for 
but in your twenties, you've got the time because you're, you're more, as you get older, the propensity to be less open-minded sets in. And so at a very open-minded 23 years old, I would have told myself that the stuff, which I learned later, the stuff doesn't matter. Winning that race at that age doesn't matter to stop and really go much, much deeper than you would normally at 23 years old and learning about what life's all about. And I did a lot of that, but I would encourage myself to do a lot more. Excellent. Well, thank you, Rob Follows, for this this incredible interview. I appreciate all that sharing. What you could do now is tell everybody where to find STS Capital Partners. What's the website so we get it is, this correct. Yeah, there's only one, thankfully, STS Capital Partners. That's uh, success to significance through selling to strategics. And so just looking up STS, and we hope we can help people sell their businesses to strategic international investors. It'll pay a lot more and give better terms and conditions so that entrepreneurs and family business owners can potentially give their time, treasure, and talent to what matters the most to them and create more significance in their life. Okay, my friend. Well, thank you. Let's wrap this up. This is another podcast from Sheer Clarity. We are a podcast for leaders who are trying to become leaders by attraction. We look forward to you coming back and listening to another interview. I've got a few more great guests on tap. And if you want to find more about us, please go to SheerClarity.com. And until next time, please be safe and take care. Bye-bye.